Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon text reading is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18 today. The, it's printed there on page 11 in your bulletin. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily or suddenly. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with, with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what do you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've, I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus looking at him with sadness said how difficult it is for those who have wealth enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he'll rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the word of the Lord. Father, now move in us, we pray, by your Spirit as we hear this. And may we take it to heart and live out of it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You guys ever feel like life would be easier if you weren't a Christian? I do. That's not all the story, but that's part of the story. Because when you think about what it is we Christians experience, we are told that we are following this king who rules heaven and earth. Yay, that's good. The world will be his. Yay. And because we're with him, the world will be ours, too. All that's great news. Off in the distance for Christians, there's this crown. 
unimaginable joy, unimaginable wealth, unimaginable glory. There's just one little catch. (laughs) Guess what stands between here and the crown? It's this thing called a cross. You know, this lovely thing behind me is a, this is not a cross. You know what happens on crosses? People suffer excruciatingly on crosses. People die inevitably on crosses. Crosses are miserable. They're not these romanticized things we talk about in in modern Christianity. And I sometimes wish I was in a religion where the central image, the central symbol of our religion were not a cross. (laughs) You know, maybe the center of our religion could be like a sword or a great big treasure chest. That would sell well. You could market that kind of religion. I'd even take a religion that has as its central symbol a couple of tablets of stone with laws on them. I mean, I could get behind a law religion, you know, a a justice religion. All that would be different, but a cross, a cross. And, you know, you think about that in this text, you really feel for the disciples here, because if you remember from last week, they were just told by Jesus that this road they are on with him is heading toward I don't mean to be melodramatic, but it really is heading, Jesus says, towards an apocalypse. You know, he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected and killed, he told them. And then this dreadful fire of God's wrath is going to fall on this generation who kill him as a result of their rejecting him. And the disciples are told when that apocalypse happens, you know, kind of this showdown between the king and his enemies, they, his disciples, are going to escape. But it's going to be a very near thing. And then here at the other end of this text that we just read in verses 31 and following, we just heard this. Jesus gives more explicit detail of what awaits their master when he gets to Jerusalem. And we're told at the end they're just confused. They're troubled and confused. And and there's all this dark stuff out there on the horizon, these horrible crosses coming. And they don't even know how to understand it. It just sounds bad. And I wonder if you guys ever feel that way as a Christian. Sometimes you ever look ahead and, and you just, you try to imagine what kinds of crosses might lie between you and the crown. And, and you don't even know what they're going to entail. You don't even know what they're going to be. Let alone how on earth, when you actually find out about some of what's coming, what's gonna, how could life be on the other side of those kinds of crosses? And so there's just a lot going on for the disciples. And I love how Jesus takes this moment, having said some really dark things, to give his disciples what I'm calling strong encouragements, sources of comfort as they face the crosses that are to come on the kingdom road. And I would like to show you three crosses in particular that Jesus speaks of here. The first is pretty obvious. It's the most obvious of the three, and it is the cross that they will face of unjust opposition. So, you know, that's obviously a cross that not just the Christians in Jesus' time, but all Christians are going to face this. Because one of the things that we realize as we look at the world then and now is that earthly powers, earthly powers respond to us, Jesus people, the way they responded to Jesus, right? And that means opposition. Now, the opposition isn't always the same. I mean, you know, sometimes the opposition takes the form of just real hardness. Like, we just don't want to hear about it. We don't believe in him. We're not, we don't accept his claims. That's old-fashioned and outdated and, you know, from the dark ages. And just go away, Christians. We're not interested in your silly religion. Or it can take the form of actual hostility. I mean, these disciples in Jesus' time, they are facing rulers who will literally kill before they will bow to Jesus. They will kill him and they will kill his disciples. They, they will murder 
in opposition to his claims. But there are a lot of other ways to oppose the gospel. You know, we're trying to bring the message of God's life and God's peace and mercy and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what could be like Jesus went about doing good and speaking what is good, and yet there's this completely unjust opposition to it. It can be murder. It can also just be kind of mockery or marginalizing the messengers of the gospel or whatever. But I'd like you to notice in the opening verse here, whether it is being actually hunted down because you follow Jesus, and some of our friends throughout the world, they know what that is like, or whether it's more like in our situation where just all the winds are against God's righteousness and against God's truth, we are tempted, Jesus says in verse 1, we are tempted to what? To lose heart. It's tempting to lose heart. It can feel as if the powers opposing us are so powerful, and we're so weak, and you just wonder, will God ever vindicate those who trust him and obey him? And so Jesus talks to them. He wants to encourage them in that cross of unjust opposition. And it's interesting that in his parable, the characters, the two characters in this parable are polarized in terms of social power. You have this godless, indifferent, doesn't give a toss, <laughs> stubborn judge with all the power. And you have this widow and in the first century, you know, widows, this was probably like the worst lot to, to, to be in because you had no man to protect you. And in that society, you needed a man to protect you. You had no man to provide for you, which you also needed in that society. And as a woman, you had no voice because nobody cared what you thought. Nobody was going to listen to you. That was just a very, very, like, systemically chauvinistic society. And so if you were a widow, you were in serious trouble unless you had sons who could stand in for you. And so she has got zero social power. And the judge has all the power and doesn't care at all. Now, it's interesting, if you think what these characters are representing, the disciples are obviously represented by this widow, helpless. And who does the judge represent? Interestingly, the judge does not represent earthly powers that oppose Jesus or his disciples. That judge represents God in the parable. And what Jesus is doing here is he's issuing a call to his disciples in the face of tremendous adversities, and terrible injustices, horrible things will be done to them because they worship Jesus. He's calling them in this parable to pray. Now, the encouragement in the prayer, to, the encouragement to pray is that God actually is not like this judge in his character. You, know, you think about this judge, and you think about situations where maybe you've had to look for justice in this world, and there are earthly systems of justice. We can thank God for that. There's nothing wrong whatsoever of availing yourself of earthly systems of justice at times when you're able to do that. But have you ever noticed, and you look at all the injustices that are done in the world, have you ever noticed that very often earthly systems of justice, there just doesn't seem like there's a lot of zeal for justice. You ever notice that? I mean, sometimes there are, but so often, you know, you look at earthly, you know, powers that could render justice, and they just seem very hard to move. It's kind of hard to get their ear. It's hard to get them to really pay attention and care. Sometimes there's conflicts of interest where they actually have a reason, kind of, you know, they can line their own pockets by not being zealous and pursuing justice. And even where they are stellar, there's only so much they can deliver. There's so many wrongs they actually cannot right. And this judge is kind of, he represents, you know, in a way, what we kind of picture sometimes when we think about earthly powers that could deliver justice. And part of what's going on here is he's the, he's the, he's the character with a power and authority, but Jesus is also kind of showing us that in the character of God, this is not the case at all, we see with this judge. 
That's not what we're dealing with when we come to God and pray for justice. There is no greater zeal for justice than God's zeal for justice. You care about justice, God cares about it infinitely more. And there is no greater power to deliver and to put all things right than God's power to do justice for those who cry out to him. And so Jesus is encouraging his disciples, even though you are in this position where you have no power and you're coming to God who has all power and all authority, you can know that if you can get an earthly judge to finally you know, bend and do something for you, 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 how much more God who loves you and has infinite zeal for justice and all the power to bring it about. And so you are to pray. You are to put your case before that highest tribunal above all tribunals, and you can absolutely know this judge will not fail you when you pray. But notice something. Notice something. There is a likeness between this judge and God. And what is the likeness? It is that justice takes time. It takes time. Why does it take time for the judge? Well, because he's a self-absorbed, there's a word I can't use in the pulpit. It takes a long time for his self-interest to finally kick in. You know, he actually, the, 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 the most literal rendering of the Greek is he finally is like, this woman is giving me a black eye. You can imagine him talking to his law clerks. She's here again? Make it stop. I can't deal with it. And he finally, out of self-interest, like, okay, fine, fine. Give her what she wants. Well, you can get a judge to do that. God, his justice takes time too, but it's for very different reasons. There's a kind of a, some debate about the exact way to interpret verse 7 in the Greek, but one way of reading it would be, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, although he delays long over the wicked, although he is very patient with the wicked? See, the judge takes a while to get him to finally, his selfishness to kick in. With God, God is patient with the wicked. Beloved, is that not to his credit? that he gives the wicked space to repent. He is not swift in smashing those who have sinned against him, but he promises the disciples here that patience will not be forever. The vindication of those who trust in the Lord will come. God wills to vindicate his people, and it will come suddenly. And so Jesus says with that strong encouragement, you pray and you pray and you pray and you don't lose heart. Just like that Psalm 59, rise up, O Lord, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. You pray. And the encouragement is, God is willing. It will come. There's another cross. The cross of radical humbling. Now this one's not obvious, and the reason it's not obvious is because this middle section opens with a man who has bypassed this cross to grab a false crown. He is full, this Pharisee in Jesus' parable, he is full of his own righteousness. He despises his moral inferiors. You hear him praying to himself in the temple, you know, standing there just droning on to himself about how awesome he is and what you know, losers other people are. He has crowned himself. And the reason he's crowned himself is because his self, his ego, his pride has never been crucified. And it's easy to mock this Pharisee. You know, he's, he's a pompous fool. He is praying to himself about himself. You get the sense God is paying him no mind whatsoever. And it's easy to mock him. But you know, if you read the text, it's one thing to mock the Pharisee, as we should. 
It is quite another thing to become like this tax collector, the other character in the parable. And I wonder if we often consider the cross, the crucifixion that brought this man here to sneak in the back door of the temple and stand barely inside the doors of this holy place, and he will not even raise his eyes to look at what's going on here. But at the same time, he is not moved by the hostile stares. I mean, tax collectors are in bed with the Roman Empire. They are not only morally corrupt, they are socially contemptible. And you can imagine every head in that temple snapping when he walks in. What is this guy doing here, this scum, this Gentile-serving scum? He doesn't care about all those hostile stares. He doesn't care what human beings think. He cares what God thinks. And he is unable to lift his eyes to, when he thinks about what God thinks of him, and he beats his breast before the living God. I think perhaps the severest cross in the Jesus way, no disciple escapes this cross, is the cross of humbling. The crucifixion of yourself the crucifixion of our pride, the cross of seeing what I really am before the holy God. Who cares what other people think? Who cares what I think? My self-esteem is useless in standing before God. It is God's esteem of me I must reckon with and to really come to terms with what I am when all the fig leaves are stripped off and I'm just nakedly exposed before the eyes of the holy God, that is a cross. Because when you come to that place, you understand something, and that is there is exactly one basis for God to be merciful to you, exactly one, and that is his mercy. Let me say that again. When you really see what we, you and I are before a holy God, there is exactly one reason for God to be merciful to us, and that is that God is merciful. Amen? What else are you going to plead? Where are our bargaining chips before the holy God? What are you going to say? Like, oh God, be impressed. He will have mercy because he is a God who delights in mercy. If I'm going to be saved from the wrath and condemnation that I absolutely deserve, and if you have not come to a place where you feel that, you have not really reckoned with who you are before a holy God. You deserve his wrath. I deserve it. It's not God having a bad day. And if I'm going to be received grace, it must be because he is gracious because I've got nothing to plead before him. But there is exactly the encouragement that Jesus gives. For the unjust sufferers, it is God's willingness that encourages us. For wretched sinners, it is his welcome. Because there is no secure place, Jesus tells us, there is no secure place than to be cast upon the mercy of God because God delights in showing mercy. He never turns anyone away who cries out to him for mercy. And he is far more than that to us. He will stop at nothing to provide everything that is needed so he can show mercy. This temple that this tax collector is standing in exists because God, through Moses, created a system by which substitute animals could die in the place of sinners so they could be forgiven and welcomed into God's presence. And in this moment as Jesus is speaking this parable he is the lamb of God he is the son of God and he will offer up his perfect righteousness to the father in our place and he will offer up his penalty bearing for for our curse 
absorbing the wrath of God for us on the cross. He will be that ultimate substitute lamb. And why is he here? Because sinners thought this up? No, because God sent him for that purpose in order to give mercy. That's the heart of God. It's indeed, God is coming to us. It's not even that we come to him. He loves showing mercy. So when you are thrown upon the mercy of God, there's no better place to be. Jesus says, this man, this humbled man, his pride crucified, he is justified. That glorious biblical word that means this man has standing. This man can stand before God. He has access. He is declared righteous before God on the basis of what God alone supplies for him. There are echoes here of Isaiah 66 too. This is the one, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one I will look at. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There is no better place to be than absolutely thrown upon the mercy of God. This man, Jesus says, is justified. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God welcomes you. But there's a little more here because you'll notice the story of Pharisees despising, this Pharisee despising the tax collector, it's immediately followed, isn't it, by a story of the disciples despising children. Likely toddlers, grubby little toddlers. And this is interesting. So the, the Pharisee despised this tax collector. God welcomed him. Now we have the disciples of Jesus despising these little ones because they're not worthy of Jesus' time. I mean, look, this is not like some celebrity looking for an Instagrammable moment here. There is absolutely nothing that would make Jesus want to spend time with these children. They have nothing to offer him. They have nothing to offer his movement. These little, you know, kicks, you know, imagine these little toddlers squirming in their mother's arms. They, they don't, they're not even going to offer Jesus thanks if he blesses them. They're not going to fall down and worship him. They're not going to make any kind of public scene that brings him honor or glory. It does not get any more one-sided than blessing a, a toddler. It's all one way, blessing a toddler. And the disciples are just annoyed. Like, get these children out of here. This is, this is the Messiah at work. This, you know, Give him room. He's got important things to do. He's got important things to say. And it's interesting, Jesus is not happy with this. He is not happy with the pushing away of these toddlers. And on one hand, you'll notice what he says to the disciples. It extends the encouragement of the temple story he just told. Because he... God, you see, as Jesus rebukes the disciples, God doesn't just welcome the defiled who need his mercy, like the tax collector. God welcomes the dependent who need everything. God doesn't just welcome the defiled who need his mercy. He welcomes the dependent ones who need absolutely everything. Toddlers don't contribute a single thing. Any of you guys got toddlers? What do they contribute to your household life? Snot and Cheerios. I mean, what is it? There's nothing. They don't do chores. They're, they're useless. You know the great thing about toddlers, though? They have no pride to pretend otherwise. No toddler sits around having a moment of, like, oh, self-esteem, I don't contribute. They have no delusion, these little ones, of self-sufficiency. They don't think they can take care of themselves. They have this brassy expectation that people are going to take care of them all the time. Every single need they have, someone's going to take care of it. You know what that looks a lot like? That looks an awful lot like faith. 
This brassy expectation that everything I need will be provided for me, that looks a lot like faith. In fact, Jesus says you might want to consider that's how you enter the kingdom. And so he extends the encouragement. God welcomes the defiled. He is merciful. He welcomes the dependent who need everything. This is radical humbling. And on the other hand, there's a rebuke here to the disciples because they're not hospitable like Jesus. And one way that you know this cross of radical humbling has done its work in you is when you are really hospitable to humble people. You know you've really been humbled before God by the way you treat the people that other people want to push away. Do you ever consider the kind of community that humility makes possible? I was thinking about this this morning. Can you imagine living in a community of people where everyone in that community has been completely liberated from pride? Where we're all so utterly and unembarrassedly and unpretentiously humbled before God that we're freed to really, really take an interest in each other? It's interesting to me as a pastor watching my kids over the years. My kids have spent a lot of time around Christians, and I will tell you, pastor's kids are very perceptive. It comes of growing up in a fishbowl. They watch Christians. They know a lot of Christians. And it's been interesting to me over the years to watch who my kids look up to. Who do they admire among God's people? Who do they want to be like? And as I've thought about it, I've noticed what impresses my kids. The people they look up to, the people they want to speak into their life, are the people who have the, a humility that makes them hospitable. People that have a humility that makes them welcoming. People that have a humility that has produced an openness about their lives. And I thought as I was working on this of C.S. Lewis's famous little passage in Mere Christianity where he says this about humility, about what a humble person is actually like. And think about how this affects community. He says, don't imagine that if you met a really humble man, he'd be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. By the way, I, there are a lot of Christians like this. Oh, I'm just a, always like, my, I got a friend who calls it wormology. I'm just a worm. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so bad. I'm just so full of sin. They just drone on about their badness. It's a form of self-centeredness. Lewis says, probably all you will think about this person is that he just seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the freedom of true humility before God. And what a community that would be to live in. There's another cross, and we're almost done. The cross of costly sacrifice. Jesus encourages us with the cross of unjust opposition and radical humbling, but also there is costly sacrifice. And again, this cross is a little bit hard to see because we again start with a man who wants the crown without this cross, right? The rich young ruler, we all know the story. He wants all the glory with all the possessions. And what gets crucified when you and I come to Jesus is not just our pride, it's also our possessiveness. If you're going to come to Jesus, and he is very, very clear about this, every single thing that you think you own is now at the king's disposal. And if there's anything in our hearts that kind of box at that, like, you know what, everything I have now, everything I think I own is now at Jesus' disposal, if there's something in me that kind of wants to push back against that, there, there's two possibilities. Either it is because I lack 
faith. I, I actually trust my stuff more than I trust Jesus. Or I lack love. I want my stuff more than I want to do good in Jesus' name. And in fact, Jesus in verse 25, you'll notice, actually says something shocking. By the way, there is no, you'll hear ridiculous things said about how, you know, the, the eye of the needle is some like really small gate in Jerusalem that camels had to like take off their baggage and kneel down and crawl through. That's ridiculous. This is an actual needle that you put thread through. It is impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle. The whole bloody point of the story is that it's impossible. Okay? And Jesus says that. He says, actually, it is impossible for the wealthy to get into heaven, to get into the kingdom of God. And people are like, oh, my word. No, but with God, it's possible. The reality is that apart from the work of God in our hearts, wealth will keep us out of the kingdom of God. Why? Why? Because there's something wrong with wealth? No, because we naturally trust our wealth and love our wealth more than we trust Jesus and love Jesus, and that'll keep you out of the kingdom of God. And unless God changes your heart, that's how it'll be. So you come to Jesus. It's all at his disposal. Does this mean, as Jesus crucifies our possessiveness, does that mean he's always going to take our wealth away? He's always going to tell us what he told this young man to give Everything to the poor? Absolutely not. Listen to what I said. Jesus does not crucify our possessions. He crucifies our possessiveness. Anything we hold back from Jesus, he's going to zero in on that. But just as with the crucifixion of our pride, isn't it amazing to think about what a burden <laughs> this lifts? What a burden of anxiety is lifted off our hearts when Jesus says, it's all mine. That means you are finally free to enjoy what God has given you without worshiping and clutching any of it, without making it your God, making it your hope, making it your security, and you're free to give and give generously and enjoy giving without any fear because it all belongs to, to your Lord. And so again, you can see how Jesus encourages those who face this cross after he's talked with sadness to this rich man. His disciples bring up, well, Lord, you know, we've kind of been through this cross. We've lost everything for you. And notice the encouragement. The encouragement here is that absolutely nothing is lost when you surrender everything to Jesus. In unjust suffering, we need to hear of God's willingness for us. In our abject sinfulness, we need to hear of God's welcome for us. In the costly sacrifices of following Jesus, quite unexpectedly what we need to hear is that God's wealth is for us. That as we lay all things at Jesus' feet, he doesn't just give us himself. He says, you will have homes and provisions and family and so much more in the kingdom of God in this age and in the age to come, forget about it. You guys look around today. You realize all of this is because you follow Jesus? All the resources of this community are available to you because you follow Jesus. What do you lose in following Jesus? My daughter just finished reading Corey Tenboom's book, The Hiding Place. Guess what she lost in following Jesus? Her home, that beautiful baye that she lived in in the Netherlands. She lost her father to the camps. She lost her sister to the camps. Can I ask you something? Did Corey Tenboom lose? If she were here, I can guarantee you what she would say. I've lost nothing. Because in all that I have lost in following Jesus, oh, what I have gained. I even have a brother who's a former Nazi. You do not lose in following Jesus in this age. Certainly not in the age to come. And there's the encouragement. Jesus, I guarantee, he will call you out of your comfort to serve and to sacrifice 
but you will always receive so much more than you've given. And so, beloved, I hope that today you found some encouragement. If you're facing opposition, know that your Father's ears are open to you. Pray without ceasing. If you're facing your own wretchedness, I hope you have heard that the fountains of mercy are full and deep and your God says, come, just come. And if you're facing sacrifices and following Jesus, do you not serve the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who laid aside his glory so that you could be crowned? That is his heart for you and none of those who trust in him will be disappointed. Those are the encouragements we need. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.